Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. As lawyers, we are hooked on our data. It's precious to us. It's a precious commodity. We believe everybody needs it. But we knew from focus groups that you don't. We knew that the big cases would bring up the value of the small cases, and the small cases would bring up the value of the big cases, and that that dynamic together would end up being very positive. Because this is so serious. And so that's what we did. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry. And, and here with me is Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I am good. I'm good. So, Yvonne, a couple of years ago, uh, I was in Boston with my older daughter and uh, and I saw, uh, you know, this tour thing for, uh, you know, this thing called a duck boat. And I really, really wanted to go do it. And I really wanted to get my daughter to go on this ride. And, you know, I thought it was cool because you could ride uh, on land and then it takes you right into the water and you go. And she just would not have any of it. I mean, she did not want to get on that thing. And I, you know, she never said exactly why, but I think, you know, her intuition was uh, just spot on about really how dangerous uh, these duck boats uh, can be. And, uh, and the case that we're talking about today uh, is uh, right on point with that. And, um, and so, um, you know, I, 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 I never went back and talked to her about why she didn't want to go on the duck boat, but, uh, but it, it does make me think about it, especially after some of the stuff we've been seeing in the news. And then, of course, uh, this verdict that happened out in, in Seattle. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen, I don't know if I've ever seen a duck boat in real life. And if I had seen one, I don't know. I probably would have wanted, I either wanted to, I either would have wanted to get on one or if I didn't want to, it just would have been like, because um, in general, like guided tours kind of right. I'm not really into, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know if I've ever seen one. And um, I, I think for a lot of our listeners, they probably heard about them now in the news, but um, this, this case really blew my mind. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah. So, so the case that we're talking about is Den versus Ride the Ducks International and Ride the Ducks Seattle uh, that was tried out in the Superior Court of King County, Washington. That's Seattle. Uh, and the, the lawyer uh, was the lead trial on, lawyer on this case. Her name is Karen Kohler. Uh, Karen is a partner at Strip Matter, Kessler Kohler, Moore out in Seattle, Washington. And you can look up Karen at uh, KarenKohler.com. That's K-O-E-H. L-E-R.com or Strip Matter, S-T-R-I-T-M-A-T-T-E-R.com. Welcome, Karen. Hi, guys. Well, this really was a uh, uh, just a fascinating case, and I've got uh, just a ton of questions about it. Um, But um, and and you obviously did a a tremendous job on uh, on this case. Well, thanks. so, Karen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about you a little bit uh, first, just so I can tell our listeners who you are. Um, Karen is a uh, lawyer in Seattle, Washington, and uh, she has been trying or been uh, practicing law since 1985. Uh, Karen has won uh, a number of um, high-profile cases and uh, has won a number of awards. Among those, uh, Karen has been named as the Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Washington State Association for Justice uh, in 2005. She was named as a Top 10 Super Lawyer for Washington State in uh, um, 
2014, and she has been named as a top 100 super lawyer in Washington State for what looks like the last 12 years uh, each year and named as a top uh, 50 uh, woman, uh, women lawyer uh, in super lawyer in Washington for the last, I think, 16 years, if my math is right. Uh, she's been named as one of the best lawyers in America, one of the top 500 uh, leading lawyers in America from, from Law Dragon. Uh, so we are just, uh, and, and Karen has been the president of the Washington State Trial Lawyers Association, now, now known as the Washington State Association for Justice, and uh, is on the board of the American Association of uh, Justice among numerous other things. And, uh, and we're so happy to have you on the show, Karen. Thanks for having me. We should also mention that Karen has a very cool blog, which you can learn about on a bonus episode of the podcast. So the case that we're talking about is called uh, Den versus Ride the Ducks International and Ride the Ducks Seattle. Uh, it uh, finished trying in just February of this year, 2019. Uh, so you're uh, fresh off of this case. Uh, and it was a result of, uh, the result was a $123 million verdict, which uh, if I saw right, you represented 40 separate uh, plaintiffs, uh, ranging in awards from about 500000 to just under $26 million. Um, and um, the, the basic uh, background of the case, and Karen, if I get anything wrong, let me know. Uh, but on September 24th, 2015, uh, there was a, a, a duck boat that was owned by Ride the Duck Seattle uh, that was taking a group on a tour. It was crossing the Aurora Bridge in Seattle on State Route 99 uh, while uh, it was driving the uh, axle. The, the is, I think it was the right, uh, the right wheel fell off of the, uh, of the um, uh, duck boat and caused it to basically veer to the right and it collided with the side of a, of a charter bus, uh, Bel Air charter bus, and uh, injured not only a number of people on the Ride the Ducks uh, um, uh, uh, vehicle, but also on the charter bus. And um, I think there was 36 passengers on the Ride the Ducks boat and then a number of people in the charter bus that were were also uh, severely injured. And I think I saw that um, out, there were 64 people injured and, and uh, five uh, people killed in this collision. And in, in the case that you tried, Karen, it looked like you had uh, 40 people, which in, included uh, two death cases. Is that right? Close. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to keep track of all the statistics. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, uh, our, our final group going into the trial that we uh, had about uh, 44. Um, and I always say about because uh, I had five, I have five other cases um, that joined right before the statute. And it was so late that the defendants objected them to them being included in the, in the lawsuit. So I still have five cases have not been tried. Um, we went in with three of the death cases and 40 uh, plaintiffs during the trial. Uh, one of my co-counsel settled one of the death cases and three of the injury claims. So, um, so, and, and uh, that was, those four claims were settled um, for $8.5 million. Um, I obviously wanted them to stay to the end, um, right. but I deferred to the co-counsel. Um, so the remaining cases, which were 40, uh, 
were the two wrongful death and then the um, uh, arrest were injury cases and they did range as you have said. Okay. Well, Karen, I think the, the best place to start is, can you just kind of uh, lay out for our listeners, what exactly is a duck boat and where did it come from? So a duck boat is a amphibious vehicle, in this case manufactured in 1942 uh, for World War, uh, the World War and modified slash remanufactured uh, by a company called Ride the Ducks International, who would take the chassis, and this was called a stretch duck, um, cut it in half, add 15 inches, and then build around that chassis using a combination of old axle parts in this case, uh, old truck axles, old axles that would fit, uh, and then uh, newer things, I guess. Uh, but the key component parts here that failed were from the 1940s. These are then uh, outfitted with seats, uh, canopies, uh, examined by the Coast Guard, and then put out on the highways uh, of, of the nation um, and waterways as tourist vehicles. Right. So if we watch, say, a movie like Saving Private Ryan, are these the, are these the vehicles that they were making the D-Day landings on, the same type of vehicle? Correct. I think that there were about 2,000 of them deployed in D-Day. Wow. And, and, what, and the, the, what happened here was essentially the, the uh, front axle broke, and I, and I saw during your opening, um, which I, I want to talk uh, a lot about your opening because I, I uh, there's, there's a lot Me of really too. fascinating was, parts it was, to it. It was uh, so good, and it's online, yeah. so yes, for our yeah. listeners, you can watch it. Um, but but what what happened was essentially the uh, the axle broke and and I think what the allegations were that I saw is one is they they had put this rubber boot around that I think was supposed to keep water from getting in and out but the problem was is it basically covered up the axle uh, when there was uh, uh, when the metal was deteriorating or or getting fatigued and so people weren't really checking the axle like they should have been, uh, even though there had actually been some um, uh, technical service bulletins about some of the problems with the axles. Is, is, that's what happened here? Combination. So the touring company, Seattle Ride the Ducks, we alleged that they um, uh, were, uh, had a horrible maintenance program. Um, 80 of the service bulletins that they received, 80% were not ever um, dealt with. This wow. was one of them that was not dealt with. Um, on the other hand, they got an old piece of equipment with a underlying defective axle housing in it from a manufacturer that basically eyeballed them, did no testing to determine if there were, um, uh, you know, origination cracks and, and defects so that they shouldn't be using those old uh, axles that they would pull out of a pile in the back of their shop that they called the graveyard. So it's a combination of these two companies. The jury found, of course, that the, the manufacturer is more liable than the other people for, the man, for, the, for not inspecting it and not doing the repair work to it. Right. And the, and the manufacturer would be Ride the Ducks International and then Ride the Ducks Seattle was the company that owned it and, and, uh, and ran the tour, the tour company? Right. And one of the one of the running themes in 
in this case seem to be the different ways that the ride the ducks of Seattle was trying to improve profits. And um, I, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but was the whole sort of inadequacy of their maintenance department being short staffed or under trained, was, was that part of them trying to save money or was that just a shortage of people who could really do this kind of work? What was happening there? Well, there's a difference between what I, what I believed and what I believe the evidence would have shown and what I was allowed to present. Okay. Uh, so right. in, in Washington state, uh, unless there's an exception, we're not allowed punitive damages. So the verdict that you're looking at is not a punitive damage verdict. That, that was one of the questions I had. So, the, so you're, you're not allowed punitive damages at all, or is, do you have to make a threshold showing or? So we don't have punitive damages. We did move for punitive damages only against Ride the Ducks International on a conflict of an, a laws analysis because they are allowed in Missouri. And the judge uh, found in our case that, that she wasn't going to allow them. So she stayed with the Washington rule, did not, did not allow us to bring in the Missouri law. And Washington law is no punitive damages. Wow. Okay. So as part of that, you, you couldn't really go into some of these um, cost-based decisions or how did that affect what you could present on these issues? So we didn't talk about them in terms of this was because it was too expensive um, uh, other than just kind of maybe you could make that inference. Uh, okay. It was really a matter of incompetence and poor delegation and no follow through and management not listening to the people that wanted uh, more mechanics. And, you know, most likely that's, you know, you know, why management makes decisions. So, um, but we weren't allowed to like show how much profit they made or what mon- what amounts of money they had available to hire more staff. We weren't allowed to do anything like that. Got it. Got it. And just for our non-lawyer listeners, that's, that's often the basis for punitive damages is when you can show that a, a decision that really affected safety was sort of intentionally made or um, uh, wantonly made to... Um, <laughs> now you're going to have to define wantonly. Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, it, was hard, it was hard enough for me to say. It's a word I like to write and not have to pronounce. Right, um, right. But when people put the bottom line over safety, the financial bottom line, that's usually um, a great basis for punitive damages. And so that's why we're, we're talking about that piece in connection with punitive damages and why Karen had to sort of adjust that for her case. I mean, most people, when they see a verdict of the size, just assume, oh, it's a punitive damages verdict. Right. And I think it's remarkable because it is not. Right. Well, and, and, and just reading, you know, the evidence in this case and the, you know, both watching your opening and then, uh, uh, you, I, we should also mention you can read about the closing on the WSAJ. I'm not sure what the website is, but it's the Washington uh, uh, Association of Justice website. The closing argument is on there. But reading the evidence on there, I mean, this really is a uh, uh, would be a punitive damages case in my mind. It would be. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. 
Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions that they can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Um, well, you know, one thing I uh, wanted to ask you about uh, right off the bat, Karen, is I was thinking about the timing of this case because it looked like, you, did you start this case around November of 2018? Do you mean when we tried it? Yeah, when you tried it. That's it. Yeah. So the trial date started October 1st, uh, okay. but it started off with some motions and then it took us about a week and a half to pick the jury. Okay, because I was, well, what I was thinking about is, I mean, so it was right during your trial is when the tragedy in Branson, Missouri uh, happened. Is that right? With the, with the duck boat there? So that happened in July of 2018. Oh, okay. In fact, okay. Yeah, in fact, the, about six days before that happened, we were in Branson taking final depositions for our case. And uh, so it really uh, was awful to hear that. I'd seen him. I'd, I'd been, you know, actually the defense lawyers had been uh, joking with me to go ride the ducks. And I kept saying I would never ride a duck. Right, right, right. Um, and then wow. that happened. Horrible. Well, so I was wondering, okay, so I got my timing wrong, uh, but I was wondering, um, how did that get, um, did the judge make any rulings about not mentioning what happened in Branson or did that come out in voir dire or anything like that? Yeah, that, that's why Vardir took, we had, uh, she called 400 people for Vardir and we had to then uh, break it down um, and uh, uh, find people that, that hadn't been exposed to uh, the Branson, Missouri tragedy who really didn't know anything much about Seattle issues. Um, it's a very neutral group of people we ended up with, but it was as a result of a very long process. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, cause I was just thinking from a, you know, that, that would be hard to find people. That was such a, a big national story. To, it would be hard to find people who hadn't heard of it or hadn't formed some opinions uh, before the case about duck boats based on a, uh, based on what happened in Branson. Yeah. But a lot of people hadn't heard about it or didn't, you know, didn't look into it. Right. Right. So, um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Karen, is uh, tell us, or, you know, uh, you, you tried this case with 40, uh, approximately 40 plaintiffs. Uh, can you talk about some of the logistical uh, issues with that? And, and it, was there ever a, uh, I mean, did you always want to try them together? Was there ever a thought to, to break them up and try them separately? Just walk us through trying this case with, with that number of plaintiffs, because that's such a, such a large number. 
Well, it's a great question. And uh, as a lawyer, you probably are wondering how that all came to be. I started off with one client who was phoned in. She was the most severely injured. Um, and then I filed a complaint. It was, it was picked up by the media and people, and they posted the complaint. And so then I started getting people um, asking me, uh, and I mean people like lawyers who had cases, right. asking me to... Um, asking to join up with me and I've been president of trial lawyers. I know how to, um, to keep people together and focused. And so we ended up with a, a group of lawyers. I had myself about, I think a dozen of the cases outright. And then the rest of them were with co-counsel and I have fantastic staff. We had to add some staff, um, but my fantastic staff and, and, uh, uh, in particular, Jessica McClure, my paralegal, who did the job of three, and then uh, Debbie uh, Watt, who did our medical, and Andrew Ackley, who was with me every step of the way. We were the initial uh, band uh, who kind of kept this together. And our, from day one, we decided that we were going to, we wanted to lead the case because um, there were other people with other lawyers that were not in our group. And we wanted it to be done our way. Right. So we created a hierarchy structure. So I was always lead. It had to, If you wanted to join my group, you were welcome to, but there was going to be one person that was leading it um, because that was the only way that we felt we could really be fast, quick, efficient, and get it done. And so no one ever wavered from that. The other group, there was a big other group. They pretty much settled before trial, uh, except for uh, uh, about five people have not settled um, outside of my own cases. Um, and so, but there was, there was a lot of figuring out to be done. Um, some people wanted to uh, do bellwether cases where you would just try a couple cases. Uh, the defendants wanted to bifurcate the trials. Um, some of the defendants demanded that all plaintiffs, all 60 of them, be put in the same trial. Um, There was a whole lot of jockeying around. Ultimately, the trial judge said, well, Karen and her group has been leading this effort because we did. We took every deposition. We, you know, we just did every, you know, followed every motion. We did everything we could to to show that we were going to be leaders. And she said, okay, she gets to go first and she wants it this way. And we're going to make that work. And so Judge Schaefer, I give all credit to for managing a case of this size. We did not want to do bellwether. We did not want to look at this like a class action. These are individual people. Right. And there was a lot of challenges because they're from around the world. They were, right. this was either, a, a, there was a, it was a tourist vehicle hitting a bus of international students. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's what I mean. When I was looking at the complaint and, and just the, you know, the, your, the way the complaint is, is set up, you've, you've set forth the injuries to each of your clients and where they live. And you've got Japan, Holland, Austria. I mean, it must have been so complicated just in terms of coordinating depositions, getting medical records, working at the damages aspect of the case. Not to mention the translation costs. <laughs> and right. finding wow. the translators. Uh, again, my paralegal uh, is was amazing. I don't know how it was done. The judge, when we put our case on, uh, you know, when we first marked, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out how long this take, case would take. It was going to take about nine months. <laughs> and wow. I was like, no, that's not going to happen. You got, you know, you got four months or five months. Well, we, we cut it down even more from that. But it was my staff that... Um, 
we were not allowed to have one minute between witnesses. It was bang, 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 bang uh, on the plaintiff case because she was the judge was so concerned we were going to go along, and that meant and all of our clients except for one, uh, all of them flew in. Wow! Wow! Some of them had never come back. Some of them were terrorized to come back. One of them flew in from Japan, got in at five in the morning, testified, and flew back that same day. Oh my yeah. gosh! I mean, right? Not good experiences here in Seattle. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Probably didn't want to want to have to come back if they uh, could avoid it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and but I same, saw. Same for you know, same for doctors. We it's been really common now for people to perpetuate all their physicians. We didn't perpetuate a single one. We called them all live, and some of the ones uh, that were out of a state, we just used Skype. Oh wow! I, okay. You use Skype in the courtroom. Yes. Wow. So they were testifying live, just over like like we're doing now. We're, we're using Zoom, but uh, similar to this, they did that in front of the jury. Yes. Wow. And, and how did, was there any technical, uh, you know, I've never done that before. So how, how did that work? I've done it for about 10 years. Um, we used to do in the very old days, we try to get telephone, but you can't see the witness and it's important for the jury, right? To yeah. see the witnesses. So in Washington state, at least it's encouraged, uh, is allowed to do uh, video conferencing. And it, again, this has to be set up in, in advance. Uh, we had, uh, we had initially a little technical problem from one of the people from Korea. Um, and then uh, it's because they were using a battery, uh, uh, you know, Wi-Fi. And, and once they got hardlined in, they were fine. Okay. So they, they really, yeah. the, the clue is make them do hardline if at all possible. If the hardline connection is going to be good. Got right. it. Got right. it. That's a good tip. Cause we have, we have more and more, I think judges who have, who have had um, lawyers do that in a trial or lawyers who are, I mean, judges who are anxious to try it. But um, I know I've always been hesitant just from general video conferencing issues, trying to do other things of, of the state and the stakes at trial. I've always been nervous, but so the hard line is a good tip. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and, uh, and I've been in, you know, cases where, uh, you know, the judge is on you and, and con you know, you know, as soon as you're done with one makes you bring in the next. And then uh, we had one case where the judge, uh, you know, was making us stay until, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night. And, um, and then, you know, bring us in at 7am, as long as the jury was, was okay with it, he, he would do it. And it, while at the time, it's very stressful. I actually, looking back on how I, how I tried, I actually enjoyed it because it moved so quickly. And, you know, really, you were just in the moment and, um, and didn't give you much time to stress about how the case was going, because you were just trying it. Um, and and it, it was a good result, so that helped too. Yeah, but the logistics, especially with the the interpreters, and you have to you know we had to manage those through the court, and and they were and they fly them up like half of them are flown flown in. I don't know how they do it, because um, <laughs> they have to be certified and and blah blah blah. Right. So it was yeah. very everything had to be planned. Wow. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about your opening, Karen, because uh, so like we said, that is available online, I think through uh, CVN Courtroom View Network. Um, and, um, and so we were able to watch your opening. And the, the first thing that, that uh, I'm, I'm sure Yvonne noticed and, and that, that you know, I noticed is you, uh, you, you put the captain's hat on, you put the, I, I couldn't tell what that was around your neck. Was that like a duck call or a, a, it was like a, a duck, duck call? It wasn't, it right. wasn't, it didn't really quack loud enough, but it, you know, it made my point. 
Right, right, exactly. And, and you introduced yourself as the captain of the duck boat and uh, in that you were going to tell them about some safety things, but weren't going to tell them about others. And I thought it was just great. Um, but, you know, it, it, uh, it takes a lot of guts to get up there and, and, and to do that and then just, just talk to the jury. And, and you did almost the whole opening wearing, uh, wearing that, and I thought it was fantastic. Well, um, so uh, I don't know what your personal lives are like, but I have three children. Right. I'm, I'm actually, my grandson was born two weeks before trial, my oh, first wow. grandson. Um, so he was uh, almost five months old by the time trial ended. He came to closing statement too. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And, yeah. and, he, and he was quiet. Was he quiet during opening? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's a really good baby. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Uh, uh, but, um, it, it, we, you know, storytelling is age old, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. who said a moderator always has to be in the third person? Right. People get that. Um, moderators don't have to be in the first person. Moderators can be inanimate objects. They can be different people. They can be all kinds of things. Um, if you believe it, then you can communicate it. If you're hesitant about it, and I've seen people do it where they say, well, okay, now I'm going to be this or not. And no, I don't introduce it. I just do it. Um, uh, full on board. And, uh, uh, initially I'm sure people just kind of are like jolted because you know, what, uh, and then they, then they, then it just settles down and they just, they can hear the story. They understand that your commitment is to tell a story that they're going to be able to, uh, understand and that you want them to understand it. So that's all that was, is really just storytelling. It was really, um, I thought one of the things that was striking about it is it really made it more of a, um, you know, versus you being this lawyer that was going to stand up there and criticize everything about the defendants, the the Ride the Ducks defendants. Uh, There was this sort of, it almost made it um, sort of more relatable because because of this perspective, I mean, I started to just think of you as the captain. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it it made it more relatable because part of your part of your opening was talking about the position that he was in, or the information that he did not know, or the th- the part the aspects of his job um, that he was uncomfortable with, like this this route going over the bridge. Did you kind of was was part of that decision because? of how you viewed sort of the captain of this boat as you were doing discovery, or can you talk us through that a little bit? Well, the captain of the duck boat was actually the first witness in the trial. And then he came in and kind of mimicked exactly what I did showing the jury what he did that day. I knew what he was going to say because of course his deposition had been taken. Right. So uh, for me, it's a way of inviting the jury to participate in the story process. And that's why I think it's more engaging than just sitting there and preaching to them. Um, I'm not a preacher type. I tend to, I'm an engager. So there's a lot of photos that were being shown while the, while you could see me moving around, there's also full on photo show going on um, to uh, show the different things and help the jury see what's going to be coming down, down the road. Um, this this uh, captain I knew was not liable for what happened. He had no he had no ability to, to steer that vehicle once that axle housing broke and the axle failed. Right. Um, and uh, so I told it, and I and I gotta tell you, I hadn't decided 
that I was going to do that until a, a, the day before. Wow. And the day before I told my office, I said, okay, you got to go down to the duck company and get a, get me a captain, go to the, go to the um, costume show store and get me the captain's hat and then go <laughs> to the ducks and get me a duck whistle. And my paralegal said, I can get that for one day on Amazon uh, direct. So she did that. Um, but before that I was thinking I was going to be, I was, I was trying to decide, was I going to be the axle? Was it going to be the wheel? Was it going to be the duck? Was, right. was, what was, you know, for me, it's all about like, how am I going to tell a story? Who do yeah. I want to be? So up until then, I knew I was going to tell it. I just hadn't selected <clears throat> on which, which, which of the different characters I wanted to be. Yeah. So it's kind of organic with me. Yeah. Well, it was really, it was really great. Although I have to point out, um, even though it's not very lawyerly or educational, but Steve, Steve thought I know the first thing I noticed would be the captain's hat and the right. duck call thing. But actually the first thing I noticed was that I really liked the jacket that you were wearing. Right. <laughs> and then I noticed the captain's hat and the duck. I mean, it was, the, the thing about it is, especially for a four month trial, um, when the reporters came back at the end and they were there for the first almost two months. Um, and then they oh, wow. broke off after about two months. Like it was, it was a long trial. They came back and the thing that they always talk, want to talk about was the captain's hat. Like, and I knew that that would be probably true after the first day when I heard the comments, I'm like, yeah, someone told me, you know what they're going to remember. They're going to, no one's going to remember what anybody said. They're just going to remember that you came out there in the captain's hat talking about, what he was going to tell the passengers that he knew and what he didn't know. Right. 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 It also really highlights, I feel, um, you know, for a lot of our cases that we've talked about on the podcast, we don't have, most of them, we don't have video, we have transcripts and it just goes to show you how different it would be reading the transcript of this opening versus seeing the video. How, how, yeah. What a big difference that makes. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, <clears throat> we talked a little bit, Karen, about some of the evidence that you uh, presented, you know, in, in your opening, you talked about the fact that, you know, they, that this hadn't been the first time that a wheel had fallen off the axle, that uh, that Ride the Ducks International had actually, you know, sent out this service bulletin uh, talking about the problem with the axle. And I think you even talked about, and I couldn't tell whether or not you had, had deposed the uh, Mr. McDowell, the person who had uh, sort of started the whole duck boat thing, um, you know, about his fix, but he had come up with this name uh, or come up with this term of referring to the axle as the canary in the coal mine, I guess, with that if you saw something going wrong with the axle, you knew there was something wrong with the rest of the boat. Um, oh, the tab fix. Okay. Okay. I did see that. Um, but I, I was sitting there thinking and, <clears throat> you know, um, you had a lot of evidence, a lot of really good, strong evidence. And, I, and I'm just wondering, what was the defense's approach to the case? I mean, how did they try to defend their actions? They blamed each other. Okay. Well, that's always great. I mean, for the plaintiff. It was super great. I got to admit, um, they did <laughs> yeah. blame each other. Uh, they blamed each other. They tried to... Uh, Unfortunately for Ride the Ducks International, and I think their, their strategy backfired more than anyone else. They tried to act like they did everything right and that this was, a, you know, they're such a great company and this was such a fantastic vehicle. And it was all because of this one little issue that Ride the Ducks Seattle didn't take care of, that everyone else took care of. Uh, 
but because Ride the Ducks of Seattle didn't take care of it, that's why it happened. And that, that is, that happened in opening statement. Uh, and it was a false promise of evidence to the jury because that's not what happened. They were not a wonderful company. They did not create a great product. Um, there, they, and they, they, there was all kinds of bad stuff that we were going to show that they did. So by puffing themselves up like that, they are the ones that fail the greatest. Now yeah. for Ride the Deck Seattle, they are, they knew they were done, right? I knew that they didn't do 80% of their service bulletins, that, that their maintenance manager was very critical, uh, from day one that he needed more mechanics. They were overworked. Um, they knew that they were in a harder position. They knew they didn't do that service bulletin and their defense was, Oh, we had enough people and we're a pretty good company. And, um, uh, we did part of the service bulletin. We looked to make sure the wheels weren't canted. Um, and, and so th they didn't come out trying to make themselves look like they were just fantastic. They were more hesitant about it. Um, so I think the lesson there is if you're, if you're coming out and opening, you need to be very, very careful that you don't make promises that you can't keep in terms of proof to a jury. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much we stress that, that the credibility at trial is, is uh, everything. I mean, if, and if you come off as, as, uh, over promising or, or not delivering on what you promise, uh, I mean, you you've lost the case. And I, I, I mean, that's, uh, that's a huge mistake. And I, and I, I guess it shows too, because I'm looking at the verdict form and uh, in the jury uh, uh, portioned most of the uh, fault to ride the ducks international uh, right. seven, 70% on, on one question, 67% on the other, and then only gave 30% or 33% to ride the ducks of Seattle, uh, which maybe, uh, you know, suggests that ride the ducks Seattle, uh, you know, had the right strategy because they got, you know, uh, not as much fault. Yeah. One of the um, things I found particularly horrifying about this case that I, w I wanted to make sure I understood, Karen, was the, the idea that Ride the Ducks um, International, I guess, was not, they were not like treated as a manufacturer, so they didn't have to issue a, a recall on when they figured out this axle problem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Ride the Ducks International escaped federal oversight until this crash occurred because they did not report themselves as being in a manufacturer to uh, NHTSA. Okay. And um, and uh, yet they were a manufacturer. They created they created these vehicles. Right. Right. And uh, so, for example, the designs weren't reviewed. I mean, they never had an engineer work on these vehicles. It's, so that it's so just like mind boggling to me. Yeah. Like your average, <laughs> I, that's just so horrifying as like just your average person slash tourist slash consumer that something like that could happen. I found them to be quite arrogant in that regard. Um, and uh, especially in a technical city like Seattle, uh, when asked about, not even by me, but when asked about, you know, the engineering, uh, the responses from the people at Ride the Decks International was that nobody knew the machines like they did. Um, they're the experts. I mean, they're, they're not experts. 
they're not engineers. They are uh, people that, well, that Mr. McDowell that created the machine was, uh, had been going to school and his dad bought the company and he dropped out to uh, work in the company and then learned it from the ground up and figured things out. I mean, the analogy I said was it's one, it's one thing to, you know, peek around on cars and, and, and make things up in a garage, but it's a different thing to do that and then create a business and sell them for hundreds of thousands of dollars and put them out on the streets as tourist vehicles. Right. Well, and, and what was their uh, um, explanation? I mean, and we should say you mentioned NHTSA, that's the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, but, but essentially the, uh, the um, agency that's responsible for regulating uh, auto manu- the auto industry and auto manufacturers. What was their explanation for saying that they didn't have to comply with NHTSA or with the uh, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards that NHTSA puts out? I mean, what did they, how did they address that? They said they didn't know. They didn't even know what it was. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, that didn't go over big either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, I didn't even think about that. But, I mean, you know, we, so we're uh, down here in Georgia. And we in, in Atlanta, you definitely have, uh, you know, a, more of a, 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 you know, technical with Georgia Tech, a lot of engineers down there. But in Seattle, I mean, you've got a, just a very well-educated community with uh, – with with a lot of engineers and um, and and um, computer uh, you know programmer types, I would assume, and and uh, and just a highly educated jury, I would I would assume. They were a brilliant jury. The the questions that the jurors asked, what they're allowed to ask questions in Washington. You you finish your examination of the witness, and then the judge asks the jury if there's any questions. We go back in chambers. They write them out, and she decides what to answer. You know, we looked at them all, and then we go out, and then she asks some of the witness. Those questions were more technical than I even knew. I mean, they're they're brilliant people on that jury, and so many engineers. And to say, you know, we don't know what NHTSA is, and we don't need engineers. We, we we've been working on these machines for decades. Just obviously wasn't very persuasive. Yeah. Wow. So that's cool. So does the jury get the opportunity to do that after every witness? After every witness. Wow. Uh, and I, I noticed in your um, in your complaint that you said that the NTSB took possession of the duck boat. Why? Uh, I mean, um, so you know, you normally we see the NTSB come in in you know airline cases and uh, um, you know and cases like that. What, how did the NTSB get involved, or was it just because this was a, a, a large uh, passenger transport vehicle? They took uh, the duck and the bus. Um, they were brought back, and the jury actually, we did a tour, so they got to see both vehicles. Um, but they did an analysis of both vehicles. They were looking at whatever they were looking at. Um, they did do findings. Um, they made recommendations. They, um, they, I think, are concerned about the duck boats uh, to begin with. Um, but they, you know, they, all, they, they don't really have that power to do anything about it, but they did do, they are, they are empowered to come and do the investigation. So they did the investigation of the, of the, of the crash. Um, yeah. Cause I, I, I thought that was interesting to have them involved. Cause normally in a, in a, uh, you know, a motor vehicle collision, uh, which this is obviously, uh, much larger than that, but, uh, you know, you don't see the NTSB come into uh, a case like that. Um, Normally. Well, yeah, but, you know, this was a mass casualty incident. Right. Um, and so it was the biggest uh, transportation disaster we've had in Seattle. And, uh, and, and there's a charter bus and an amphibious 
tourist vehicle. So, um, right. NTSB also went to Branson. Right. Okay. Right. Well, so, and that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. Some of the plaintiffs that you represented in this case uh, were were people that were on the charter bus, and then some some of them were on the um, were were on the uh, duck boat. And then I, I noticed in the verdict form that you broke out the questions between those groups. Um, how can you just talk through the logistics of how representing people on different vehicles and how that worked, and you know if that caused any uh, 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 you know, difficulties or problems with, uh, with the case? It really didn't. Um, the, all the passengers are fault free. Right. And, uh, uh, so it didn't matter what vehicle they were on. The, uh, dynamics of the impact were a little bit different. Uh, there was a couple, the jury instructions were a hundred pages long, if you can believe that. Wow. And oh. so the people that were on the duck, um, there were common carrier duties, the duck owed to those passengers that it wouldn't have owed to the bus passengers, for example. But other than that, um, uh, uh, it really didn't, didn't make it actually, it added flavor um, because if it was just a parade of four, uh, you know, 40 some it's, but it was, it helped to show like, this is the duck passengers and these are the students on the bus. And so we had a lot of huge giant boards and diagrams and seating charts and, um, all of that so that it helped uh, I think the jury to understand each person individually because there were two vehicles. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Right. And, and so the jury instructions, um, you know, I imagine, it, I mean, did the judge uh, make the jury sit in there while, while she read all of the jury instructions uh, to them? And I mean, that must have taken hours. It was, it's required. It took a little over, it took, about, it took about an hour and a half, as I recall. She read fast. That's actually a lot faster than yeah. I would have, would have thought. Yeah. And then in, 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 in Washington, does the jury get to take the jury instructions with them into the, the jury room? Yeah, they each get their own set. Okay. So then, they, so then it makes it easier for them to follow because they can take it in there. Um, yeah. Even though this didn't factor into the... I guess a, a basis for the the verdict against the the ride the ducks entities. Karen, can you talk a little bit about 
uh, this bridge and how it is my personal nightmare scenario? (laughs) Yeah. So the bridge, we sued the state and the city and, uh, I looked at taking them out, but we did focus groups and all the focus groups said we needed to leave them in. And in fact, during voir dire, amazingly, more people were prejudiced against the bridge than the ducks. We lost a lot of good jurors (laughs) that hated the bridge. Um, So, uh, uh, and and in uh, just talking about the case later with the jury, the jury said that that's the one question that they kept going back to, uh, whether, whether whether the bridge was... Uh, uh, should be implicated or not. Um, nobody likes the verbiage, but the question was, did it cause? Um, and they, and they, honestly, the case against, they felt that the case against the ducks was so overwhelming. I mean, right. Um, so, um, the, the bonus for us was, and I would never do it differently because I still do believe that the bridge is, it needs to be fixed. It's a, it's a, it is a disaster in my personal opinion. And even the jurors that said there was no negligence, no one likes the bridge. No one will say that's a great bridge. Right. Um, but the bonus was that in particular, the state had a skilled attorney uh, named Steve Puzz, who, if I missed something, he was right there to pound on the ducks. Um, he, that was their strategy was he pounded on the ducks and he wisely did not get involved in the damages part of the case. That's where, that was a big downfall uh, was that they started attacking the damages part of the case in a, in a, in a kind of not, not a great way. And I really? think that's one of, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, I don't know that I'm not saying that the, the verdict was high because they were bad. I'm just saying it, it helped the jury see what they were doing uh, by, by, by even trying to attack some of these plaintiffs in their cases. Uh, wow. So, but yeah, so, the, so, so they, so it would be me and then, you know, the ducks would do whatever they were doing and then the state would come in and pound on them again. So it was awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right, great. Right. Well, and, and it was more like I was, and I, and I think I understood, I, I could understand where the jury was coming from, coming from and strategically what you did makes sense. I just reading, especially in the complaint about that bridge and the tiny lanes and yeah. three lanes each way and no median on it, like on a bridge, like it's just like. Well, yeah. yeah and in the pictures and, and, um, and one thing I did want to talk about is how you put, uh, uh, photographs and diagrams into your complaint, but what it, it, the picture of the accident scene, uh, that's sort of taken from the air where you see how high the bridge sits. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, it's very scary, but it's also just amazing that, you know, one of the vehicles doesn't end up going over the side of the bridge and then, you know, makes it even a worse tragedy. But I mean, it, uh, it, it, it did look like a, just a very scary scene. Yeah, it was a lot of the plaintiffs had PTSD because they thought they were going to go over the bridge and die. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have nightmares like that. I have nightmares on bridges, on like right. narrow bridges yeah. and fast traffic. That just, ugh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I did want to talk about that, Karen. So, you know, we've uh, done this too, mostly in our briefs. I don't think we've done it in any complaints, but I really liked the complaint, uh, you know, and so this is a practice pointer for lawyers and young lawyers, but I mean, you, you really put a lot of detail in your complaint. You put a lot of uh, demonstratives and photographs, and it's really, um, you know, makes the complaint, which is a very thick complaint, makes the complaint, you know, a lot more 
um, you know, draws you in more because you can actually see, you know, you're not just reading about, but you can see, uh, you know, what happened. Um, how long have you been doing that for? Oh, probably 15 years, a long yeah. time, maybe 20. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very effective and I, I really like it. I'm, I was actually going to send this around to everybody in our firm and say that, uh, we need to take note. You know, I've put in pictures sometimes and sometimes, uh, it's, it's just funny. I think it depends on maybe how kind of old school you are. I've had yeah. like co-counsel or some people who didn't, they were like pictures. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I've had, I've had, I've had some of them bring motions to make me take it out and, <laughs> and that has not gone well. Um, right. because, because I'm not putting in things gratuitously. They're there to explain and to show. Right. Um, yeah. Cause sometimes it's really difficult. Like such, such vehicle is going northbound on the eastbound time to, you know, and right. then turned, I mean, it, the whole thing sometimes, I mean, we, we're precise in our language, but it's nice to not only have a mental picture, but an actual visual picture. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, well, um, so the, a couple of things that I read about, so I, I, you, um, you know, for our listeners, Karen, you wrote uh, about some of the trial or a lot of the trial on your blog, and uh, I wanted to uh, talk about a few things that I read in there. One of the things, and I, I wasn't sure I understood, but there was some mention about a, a Lego wall and the defense <laughs> was getting angry at you about a Lego wall. What, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> uh. There were so many defense lawyers in there. I mean, there we were in this giant courtroom and the ones that were there, there were at least a dozen that were always there. And then there were the ones that were all behind the scenes or they'd switch out. And then me and my co-counsel, my, my uh, member of my law firm, Andrew Ackley, we were sitting at the far end and they would just keep kind of squishing over. I knew that they were going to just keep trying to take more of our space, you know? Right, right. So um, my daughter, my sister, Jennifer, and her two boys have lots of Legos. So I asked her for Legos and um, they brought the Legos over uh, and I had them build a, I had Melanie, another uh, attorney, my firm, build a Lego wall. And we put it, I put it up next to Andrew, who was sitting next to the city attorney. And no one dared to ask about it initially, like, right. right. And then the, then uh, the bailiff said, well, the, the jurors are talking a lot about the Lego wall and you know, maybe you should take that down. And then Andrew says, well, maybe we should take it down. I said, are you kidding? Keep that up. Yeah. And uh, so it stayed up the whole trial. Sometimes I get out my tape measure, make sure that they weren't encroaching and push it back. <laughs> uh, and then, but it apparently had been driving the defendants nuts, especially. Right. The, and so Right before closing, they, they made a motion. Uh, I wasn't there to hear it because I, I I'd stopped going to motions because I was preparing for closing. Yeah. They made a motion that I not be allowed to use the Lego wall because they were sure I was going to use it in closing, and they didn't think I should be able to. <laughs> so I wasn't going to use it until they said that, and then, of course, I used it. I, I destroyed it. I destroyed it. I rammed it. I have a little, I have a little duck, and I rammed it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I love that. <laughs> but interestingly, the jury, so the jury uh, afterwards, when we talked to them, they said, someone asked them about the Lego wall and they said, oh, they love the Lego wall. They didn't, they couldn't, they talked about it a lot at first because, you know, you're instructed not to talk about the case. So they would talk about the Lego wall or what I was wearing, everything that's not about the case. They just talked, to, you know, they, they, they're just right. trying to find things to talk about, especially when they don't really know each other initially. So, yeah, they did talk about the Lego wall at first. And then, of course, it just became part of the courtroom. 
And uh, the reason was really, as you know, to demarcate the good guys from the bad guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and so and I'm, I'm trying to visualize. So they were actually pushing over onto your council table. Is that what they were doing? And we had uh, a share. We had these big, yeah. big, big, long tables uh, that span, spanned uh, the 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 width of the courtroom. And then we had to actually build some more and then more tables behind us. But on the, the primary, you know, first tier, we were sharing part of a table. And uh, so Tad, the guy next to us was a big guy and he would just keep, you know, I mean, it's just human nature. You just kind of keep encroaching on the other guy's space until we would, I would get out the tape measure, measure it, and push the Lego wall back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love that. I need one of those for like on planes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just walk around with your Lego wall. <laughs> Uh, and then I, I noticed another thing. So they, there were in your blog, you also wrote about how you had been instruction instructed not to meet the jury's eyes unless you were like presenting in front of them. What, is that that's an instruction you get that you can't even you can't even make eye contact with the jurors? Yeah, this judge is very she was like she's very involved in jury um, judicial jury studies and has done a lot of national work. She is fantastic with jury, I have to say. I've never been instructed not to look at it, not, not to meet the juror's eyes. You know, you're not supposed to say hi or anything. Right. You're not supposed to meet their eyes for four months. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah, never. If they came by, we put our, you know, we stood respectively, heads bowed, you know, just ne- never looked them in their eyes. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah that, that would be hard to do, I, I have to say. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, let's talk a, a, about your closing. Um, so you uh, started out your closing with um, with uh, the share song. If you could turn back time, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, again, I was trying to figure out like what should I do with closing, um, and and a hundred pages of jury instructions and right. proximate cause is going to be an issue. And I thought about time machine. I, you know, worried about it in my head a little bit. And then I thought, ah, oh, that song by Cher, if we could turn back time. It's actually, if I could turn back time, I made it, if we could turn back time. And then I actually kind of, uh, I think it was the night before I kind of changed some of her lyrics, made it a little bit, uh, made a li- it, so it read kind of like a little poem, but it was a song that played in your head and that became the mantra, if you could turn back time. In addition to telling the story backwards then, so I started it with where we are now, and if only they had done this, and then I'm going backwards in time. So we start with, if only they'd issued a recall notice, which they had, and if only, you know, so-and-so hadn't gotten on the vehicle, if only this, and so we're going backwards to the beginning. Right. And at the same time, we're building a, a uh, on one of the screens, we're building a timeline going the other direction. Right. Okay. If, if okay. you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then on the, and I had two screens, they actually brought a motion to prevent me from using two screens and to make me stand behind a podium. <laughs> they, they brought a, they fought a motion to make you stand behind the podium uh, oh, and, man. Yeah. and to not use two screens. Uh, plus my boards I'm very visual Um, oh yeah yeah we're we're the same like to use lots of different things and and, uh, that's that's crazy so it was if you could turn back time so you've seen the um, probably I don't know if you've seen the transcript of it um, but I'll just I'll just tell you I I have uh, the, the, the first of Cher's lyrics and it's if we could turn back time if we could find a way we take back the carelessness that changed all your days. We don't know why they ignored the things they did. 
We don't know why they risked the things that it could have fixed. Their negligence was like a knife that cut deep inside, the vehicle like a weapon. It wounded and killed this time. They didn't really mean to hurt you. They didn't want to see you die. We know they made you cry, but yet, if we could turn back time so we could find a way, maybe we'd do the right thing and you would be alive. If we could reach the stars, we'd give them all to you. Then you'd be back to where you were before if we could turn back time. And so that, that, was, my, that was my closing. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and, and I, I love the way you, you repeated that theme. And just like you were saying, and, you know, if they had only done this, you know, if we could turn back time and they had done this. And I mean, it's, it's a great way to present it. And uh, I like the idea of building the timeline in reverse, too. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the other thing that we haven't talked about that I, uh, you know, uh, just uh, again, because you had so many plaintiffs, how did you go about uh, presenting damages and then, and, you know, I, I mean, I assume each, each uh, plaintiff got their turn, you know, and, and did you kind of separate or just, just talk, walk us through a little bit about how damages was presented for these 40, 40 different cases. Okay. So that was our biggest challenge. And that's, that's, that was the way that we changed from a nine month trial to a four month trial. And that was our biggest challenge. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, plus, did I tell you that half of my clients needed an interpreter? Do you know how right, much right. longer that takes? Uh, <laughs> um, so normally in plaintiff case, you have lay witnesses, you have doctors, you have plaintiffs, you have, you know, employer, you have a whole bunch of people, right? And so we had first whittled it down to, okay, two lay, two lay witnesses, two doctors, one plaintiff. Nope, too long. One lay witness, one doctor, one plaintiff. Nope, too long. I'm wow. not kidding. We ended up realizing that everybody else was everybody else's lay witness. We didn't need all uh, that. That's a good point, yeah. Confirming. And then ex- with the exception of maybe five lay witnesses um, and one for the really big case, two of them for the big case, I mean, which was the exception, um, we got rid of all the lay witnesses. We also got rid of almost all the doctors for any case that there wasn't a broken bone. Um, I had uh, a doctor from Harborview, which is our number one trauma center, so high, high demand doctors who had uh, treated two, but was a t- happen- happened to be attending. So I got him to agree to testify as to seven of them, the seven of the worst, because they all right. the worst ones went to Harborview. Um, we, uh, um, uh, ultimately threw out any set of medical bills that were under $50,000, which was about 40%, maybe, no, about maybe 60% of our clients, um, 50, no, 50%, around half. Uh, we just tailored it extremely, extremely down. And the principle here is, as lawyers, we are, we are hooked on our data. Uh, we, it's precious to us. It's a precious commodity. We believe everybody needs it, but we knew from focus groups that you don't. Um, the big picture here is enormous. We knew that the big cases would bring up the value of the small cases and the small cases would bring up the value of the big cases and that that dynamic together would end up, um, being very positive because this is so serious. Um, and so that's what we did. Many people, there were some people that came in and cried for, for 10 minutes and that was their testimony. 
Mm. Um, there were other people that were very articulate and they were able to talk for 30 minutes. I think the longest might have been 40 minutes for any one person, even with an interpreter. Wow. It was extremely impactful. Um, they, they were told to, that the jury cared about them and just to show their heart. That's that's our preparation. Speak the yeah. truth, show your heart, and uh, it was very, very gut wrenching to listen to. I, my heart was in my stomach half of the time. I was uh, a lot of times I was trying not to cry. Sometimes I did. I would stick my head under the table and wipe my face. I mean, it was horrible. That much yeah. pain. Right. Right. Yeah, it's just so much. We also strategized it so that it was basically in the story. Everything was story with me. So we told one story a day. So even in the middle of liability, we, we tried to avoid any day with, without talking about a person's story. So right. um, we did have some days without the stories, but they were so each little story was we tried to keep them as a, a section. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Wow. Well, uh, well, Karen, this is uh, this has just been a fascinating case. So, um, I, I think I read I, I have the defendants filed an appeal in this case. Is that what's happening oh, yeah. now? Okay, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then you're you you still have? Uh, did you say you still have five cases left? Mm-hmm. Are those uh, are those going to be set for trial? Or are you are you getting ready to try those? Soon? They uh, they moved to uh, they filed an affidavit of prejudice against my judge, so we had to get assigned to a new judge. But yes, we have a and 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 there's a there are a four or five other cases other than mine that are set for trials. So what what did you call it? They filed against the judge. Is that like a they were asking to recuse the judge? Yep. Well, based and on just what the the previous trial? They don't have to give a reason. Oh, wow! Wow. Yeah, because once these cases were booted out of this consolidated group, then they were treated like new filings and the judge technically hadn't, you know, acted in them. And so it's a matter of, right, you can move to affidavit of judge for no reason. Wow. And is there any limit to how many times you can do that? One time. One time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, well, Karen, I really, uh, we've really enjoyed this discussion, um, and uh, this is just a tremendous result, and um, and uh, you know, just great, great trial work. Um, so we really want to thank you for your time, and uh, and uh, and I do want to make sure is is there anything else about this trial uh, that we haven't that we haven't talked about? I would just say, you know, the thing that to me kind of stands out at the end uh, was the jury. The jury knew everybody's name. They weren't allowed to take back any kind of grids or diagrams that the defense refused to give them any illustrative aids so that they can even identify all these 40 people. Um, They took immaculate notes and they treated everyone individually. Um, The $500,000 verdicts that you're looking at, those are for PTSD. Some of the, most of those people walked off the bridge. Um, And so I had a very detailed PTSD case. And uh, the defense had valued those at about $25,000 cases, uh, uh, 50,000 when they started getting moving and trying to settle them. Uh, The total verdict was about $10 million in specials and the rest in, in general damages. 
Wow. Wow. So the, so the, um, the PTSD, um, did you use a, uh, um, a psychologist, a neuropsychologist? How did you, um, how did you prove that up or as far as a forensic psychologist? And he worked with these people, including he had to do a lot of them by Skype. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, because I think the science on, on uh, you know, um, PTSD is, is changing and people are really understanding, I mean, how much this can really affect someone and that the that PTSD itself can actually uh, damage the brain. I mean, so it's, it is a very serious condition. And, I, uh, you know, that's, um, that's just really, really, really great work. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Oh, this was so great. And I, I really want to encourage everybody to... Um, you really got to go watch the video of the opening because yeah, it, is, it's good. it is really good stuff. I watched the whole thing. I mean, it, it was, it's really fascinating. And Karen, unlike, unlike Steve and I on our podcast, Karen does not say, um, like a single <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, thanks so much for having me. And I hope uh, you guys have continued success with your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Karen. And uh, let me just remind our listeners, we have been speaking with Karen Kohler. Karen is a partner at Strip Matter Kessler Kohler Moore in Seattle, Washington. You can read about Karen at her uh, website, KarenKohler.com. And we read about her blog, The Velvet Hammer, or, or you can look up her law firm and look up Karen at StripMatter.com. Uh, and, um, and Karen, we have uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, and thank you for your time. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.